Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 92 of History of the Marine Corps, the Battle of Blancmont Ridge. This battle was one of the bloodiest the Marines faced during World War I. This episode gets into actions of the 5th and 6th Marines, including a disorderly retreat by the 5th Regiment. James Gregory wrote an excellent article about it in the latest issue of Marine Corps History. I'll leave a link in the podcast description and also on the episode page on historyofthemarinecorps.com. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Plans were being made for the U.S. and the French 4th Army to launch an attack between the Meuse and the Argonne Forest. The goal of this attack was to drive back the enemy far enough to capture their primary railway communications. This loss would devastate the Germans and jeopardize all their forces between the Argonne and the North Sea. Pershing assigned the 2nd Division and the new 36th Division to the mission. The 36th hadn't been in country for long, and most of its transport and supplies were still missing, including their artillery and their engineers. The 2nd Division spent some of their time reorganizing, replenishing their manpower, and training. Marshal Foss requested support from the United States for the upcoming attack, and Pershing assigned the 2nd Division to help the French 4th Army. U.S. troops arrived in Chalon on September 26th, ready for action. The superb performance by the Army and the Marines convinced the French that U.S. forces would be more effective as shock troops rather than fighting in larger units. The initial plan was to split the American forces into smaller details, more suitable for shock troops, and the U.S. would lead the Allied forces into battle. This plan didn't sit well with Lejeune. When he learned the French wanted to break up U.S. forces, he pushed back on the idea. Lejeune met with Henry Girard, commanding general of the French 4th Army, and the two discussed the plan. In this meeting, the two men stood in front of a map, and Girard described the attack to Lejeune. A solid German line stopped the French near Sompai. The leading Allied force faced the high hills east of the Rhymes, known as Le Mans. Their position was vigorously defended, and Allied forces knew that an attack from the front would result in a high casualty rate. 
Gerard explained to Lejeune that the main line of resistance ran along a ridge line, running northeast for about four kilometers. This key location is known as Blancmont, and if taken, the Germans would have to retreat to the Aisne River about 30 kilometers away. Lejeune responded to his plan, quote, General, if the 2nd Division is kept together as a unit and is allowed to attack on a narrow front, I am confident that it could take Blancmont Ridge in a single assault, unquote. Girard took Lejeune's recommendation back to his command to discuss the Americans' offer. The following day, he called Lejeune back to his headquarters. During their conversation, he stated that the command was, quote, greatly pleased and has issued instructions for the assignment of the 2nd Division to the 4th Army. You will receive orders this afternoon to begin the movement of the division towards the front, unquote. Lejeune's protest worked and the division was allowed to attack as a unit instead. The 2nd Division was assigned to the French 21st Corps, and the 4th Brigade took charge of a front line extending close to two miles long on the night of October 1st through the 2nd. Both Marine regiments took the front line. The 5th was placed on the right, and the 6th on the left. Due to the anticipation of a bloody battle, the command left 20% of each regiment behind to rebuild should the Marines be demolished. The responsibility of Blancmont would fall on the American 2nd Division. The rolling hills had pretty steep slopes, and they were covered with a thin veil of topsoil. But the topsoil was gone due to the constant barrage of artillery, and the scars on the mountain exposed a white limestone underneath. This limestone is where Blancmont got its name. The Marines relieved the French 61st Division and were given orders to attack on the 2nd. Lejeune pushed back on this request, and he asked the attack be postponed one more day, which would give his Marines the opportunity to conduct reconnaissance on the battlefield. This would also allow the Marines to bring up the 2nd Field Artillery Brigade. The French agreed to Lejeune's request. Knowing what the 2nd Division was about to face, he issued an order as an attempt to motivate the troops. Quote, Owing to its worldwide reputation for skill and valor, the 2nd Division was selected by the Commander-in-Chief of the Allied Armies as his special reserve and has been held in readiness to strike a swift and powerful blow at the vital point of the enemy's line. The hour to move forward has now come, and I am confident that our division will pierce the enemy's line and once more gloriously defeat the enemy, unquote. Although the attempt to motivate his men was there, the reality of the situation started to sink in for the troops who would actually be charging towards the Germans. PFC Hatcher recounted his memory of Lejeune's message. Quote, We were selected from the entire Allied army by the commander-in-chief to storm the ridge and the heights beyond. I knew that we were faced with a man-sized job, unquote. A French captain briefed the U.S. troops on the sector and gave the Americans a reality check on what they were about to head into. Quote, All the terrain as far as Rhymes is dominated by Blancmont Ridge, yonder to the north. As long as the Bosch holds Blancmont, he can throw his shells into Rhymes. He can dominate the whole Champagne sector, as far as the Marne, 
Indeed, they say that the Kaiser watched from Blancmont the battle he launched here in July. And the Bosch means to hang on there. So far, we have failed to dislodge them. Unquote. Now around this time, the French captain turned and he smiled at the U.S. officers. And he continued his brief. Quote, I expect you will see some very hard fighting in the next few days, gentlemen. Unquote. In his book, The Reminiscence of a Marine, Lejeune described the battlefield his troops were about to enter. Quote, the town of Swain was completely destroyed. And the whole area north of it gave full evidence of the fact that it had been continuously a battlefield for more than four years. It was the white chalk country, and not only was it a perfect maze of trenches and covered with a tangle of barbed wire, but the very soil was desiccated and pulverized. It has been shelled and bombed and mined so frequently that it had lost all semblance of its former self. Not a tree was standing anywhere near Navarin Farm, or elsewhere in its vicinity, nor was there even a brick on the side of the farm to show that buildings had once stood there. The debris of battle was still lying about. Broken cannon and machine guns, rifles, bayonets, helmets, parts of uniforms, articles of military equipment, and partly buried horses. Most gruesome of all, fragments of human bodies were often found. Arms and legs thrust out of the torn soil, and unrecognizable, long-buried human faces thrown up to the surface of the ground by exploding shell were frequently visible. The fearsome odors of the battlefield were always present. P.C. Vagram was in the midst of the devastated area. It was not a home, but a horror. Unquote. P.C. Vagram was Lejeune's forward headquarters and was formerly the headquarters of the 61st Division. While Allied forces were preparing to attack, the German High Command had already decided that a general retreat along most of the Western Front was necessary. However, while they were moving back, they were going to make every effort to inflict the greatest possible casualties on the Allies. They ordered a series of step-by-step -step withdrawals along the immediate front taken over by the 2nd Division. All German troops were ordered to stand against the 2nd Division and avoid giving any ground. The 4th Brigade of the U.S. 2nd Division had a sector that converged on Blancmont Ridge leaving a triangular area between the two units that extended more than a mile at its base. This area was known as Viper's Woods. No troops advanced in this location, and the plan was to clear it out after the U.S. moved past it. In addition to the multiple challenges ahead, the telephone systems in place were a mess. The Americans couldn't use them, and communication to the front lines was completed by motorcycles and runners. This mission was deadly for the runners, and many of them would die or get lost navigating the maze of trenches. The trench systems inherited by U.S. troops consisted of four lines, known as the Krefeld, Prussian, Elba, and Essen trenches. The right flank of the 2nd Division was in the Essen trench. To their west, the trench bent around a strongly defended hill, and Germans still controlled that area. This bend was named the Essen Hook by the Marines. The Marine Brigade also had a battalion of French tanks attached to them. 
and each of those battalions was supported by machine gun companies. The infantry was supported by the artillery of two French divisions and multiple other artillery units, totaling 48 batteries in all. The attack was scheduled to kick off at 0550 on October 3rd. But Lieutenant Colonel Harry Lee, commander of the 6th Marines, didn't receive the message until 440. This late arrival didn't leave a lot of time to pass down the message, and the leading battalion of the 6th Regiment, commanded by Major Williams, stated that, quote, he did not have a chance to read it until after he had taken his objective, unquote. The attack commenced with an intensive bombardment from the artillery units, but this attack only lasted five minutes. The reason for the short flurry of artillery was from lessons learned in previous battles. Prolonged artillery bombardment didn't affect German forces. Most German troops would hide underground in bomb-proof bunkers and just wait out the storm. A short, intense barrage caused more damage, and after five minutes, 2-6 led the attack, with 1-6 and 3-6 following closely behind. Supporting the Marines were lighter artillery, and a rolling barrage of 100 meters every four minutes was fired by 75mm guns. 2-6 had all four of its companies in line, and they advanced quickly through the brigade sector and only received slight resistance from the occasional machine gun fire and from its left flank, where the French failed to make progress. Some of the Marine sergeants carried Remington or Winchester 12-gauge sawed-off pump shotguns, fitted with bayonets and loaded with buckshot. Believe it or not, the Germans protested the use of shotguns during the war. A diplomatic note was transmitted to the Spanish embassy in Berlin, then to the Swiss embassy, and eventually to the American legation in Bern, Switzerland. The letter stated that the use of shotguns by U.S. forces violated Article 23E of the 1899 and 1907 Hague Conventions. And it warned that German troops would execute any Americans captured with a shotgun or shotgun ammunitions immediately. Article 23 of the Hague Conventions prohibited the use of weapons or ammunition designed to cause unnecessary suffering. Brigadier General Samuel T. Anzel, the Army's acting judge advocate, pushed back on this ridiculous protest, and he pointed out the Germans' hypocrisy with examples of German weaponry, which included sawtooth bayonets, flamethrowers, and chlorine gas. But this was an argument between diplomats, not between the men fighting on the front lines, and the Marines knew little and cared even less about this debate. 2-6 reached its target along Blancmont by 8.30 and began consolidating its position. The attack of 2-6 that day was extraordinary, and some of the heroism by a couple of Marines stood out. Two of the five Congressional Medals of Honor of the 4th Brigade during the war were issued that day. The first was by Private James Kelly. During the battle, Kelly advanced through the intense machine gun fire killed the machine gun operator with a grenade, shot another German with his pistol, and brought the other eight crew members back with him through more intense fire. The second was issued to Corporal John H. Pruitt. Pruitt single-handedly attacked two German machine guns, captured them, and killed two of the enemy. 
Shortly after, he caught 40 prisoners in a nearby dugout. Unfortunately, Pruitt was killed by shellfire while sniping at the enemy. With French forces unable to advance, the entire left of the brigade was left open. 2-5 was brought up and they extended their front line to the southwest as an attempt to compensate for the French forces. The Germans saw this weakness as well, and they started forming a counterattack against the left flank. This move forced 3-5 to move to the line as well, but while the front lines were getting situated, the Marines had to deal with the strong German machine gun nests in the Essen Hook. 1-5 was responsible for neutralizing this threat, and the 17th Company, led by Captain Leroy Hunt, was sent along the trench to capture the German location. Hunt was selected for this position due to his experience at Belleau Woods and Soissons. He was gassed and wounded during these two battles, but he still performed with the cool head. Hunt and his Marines approached about 800 yards from the hook before they were repulsed by German fire. Hunt brought a 37mm gun and some supporting machine guns and put them to use against the defending Germans. His return fire allowed the Marines to move another 500 yards closer to their target. He continued to advance his platoons, covering them with machine gun fire. Hunt managed to overrun the German positions and captured 100 prisoners in the process. After his success, he turned over the captured position to the French. Unfortunately, that hard work was soon wasted, and the French lost that position shortly after by a counterattack from the Germans. Lejeune recognized the morning attack as a complete success. Although the 2nd Division did perform well that morning, Lejeune didn't mention that the division had a dangerously exposed left flank due to the failure of the French 21st Division. Because they were pinned down by machine gun fire, the French hardly made any progress at all. It was a bittersweet situation for the Marines. The more success the six Marines had advancing, the more their flank was exposed. Private Hatcher, who was assigned to 3-6, recounts, quote, The French on our left had failed to carry the enemy's first-line positions in their front, and so the Germans were, by that time, sending in a heavy flanking fire against us from high ground to our left. For the next mile, the going was pretty bad." Unquote. The success of the 2nd Division on the first day at Mont Blanc astonished the higher French command, and they wanted to take advantage of this opportunity to move forward with another attack. Quote, Marshal Foch has just learned of the success of the 21st Corps and the American 2nd Division attached to it. He directs that his success be exploited to the limit. All must press forward at once, without hesitation. The breach is made. The enemy must not be given time to repair it. Unquote. Allied forces continued to push forward that day, and the Marines' flank continued to be dangerously exposed. As the day ended, the 2nd Division had advanced three miles, seized part of Blancmont's uncapturable slopes, and detained 2,000 prisoners. The success of the 2nd Division also caused the German High Command to order a gradual withdrawal of their men from the hills east of Reims, but this withdrawal didn't mean the Germans stopped fighting. Their resistance was brutal, and their efforts held U.S. forces back from advancing. 
on the night of October 3rd through 4th, multiple Bavarian units and a dismounted cavalry regiment assembled in a line running south. German reserve units were also sent to this location, and artillery and machine gun fire was directed to the line the following day. On October 4th, 3-5, commanded by Major Larson, led the attack. The 5th passed the 6th Marines in a column of battalions and advanced about 2 kilometers. This move was relatively uneventful, and the Marines didn't face much resistance. When Larson reached his target, he extended the line to the west by a mile. Here, the Marines rested for a little while, and after they reorganized, started their advance again. They managed to move forward a few hundred yards, but were met with a volley of gunfire on both flanks. With little option, the Marines retreated to a position in the woods in line with the 3rd Brigade. The other battalions of the 5th followed them. All three battalions were exposed to artillery and machine gun fire. Seeing the opportunity to crush the Marines, the Germans ordered reserve units to launch a counterattack against them, and a devastating artillery barrage and machine gun fire hit the Marines. At 1930, several hundred Germans approached the exposed line from the southwest, forcing Larson to change his front to beat the attack. The 5th Marines suffered extensively that day. The Marines had 1,100 casualties, most of which came from the 5th. As a result, further advances into German territory didn't happen. This was the highest single-day casualty loss the Marines faced during the war. The latest volume of Marine Corps history, Volume 7, Number 2, has a great article. James P. Gregory Jr., who actually reached out to me before the holiday break, wrote the article and he gave me a heads up about its release. I'll post a link to it on our website, under the episode's page. The article is called, A Calamity of Errors, The Untold Story of the 5th Regiment at Blancmont Ridge on October 4th, 1918. It's a great read, and Gregory details the chaotic retreat by the 5th Marines. Quote, Seeing the advance of the 2nd Battalion, Major Larson ordered the survivors of the 3rd Battalion to fall back to better positions behind the 2nd Battalion. However, as they began to fall back, the 2nd Battalion did not hold its position. Instead, members of the 2nd Battalion also began to chaotically retreat, as men saw a chance to make it. This collapse of both battalions led to a disorganized retreat of the Marines. Unquote. Major Hamilton and Captain Nelms of the 5th Regiment were forced to pull their pistols to stop the fleeing Marines. Colonel Phelan launched an investigation on this incident. It concluded that the retreat was the best option in this scenario, but where the Marines went wrong was when both the front and support lines combined with each other and fled. This retreat was one of the Marine Corps' biggest blunders of the war. So why is it never talked about? There's a lot of Marine Corps lore out there. We touched on a few during the life of this podcast, one of which was regarding the term Devil Dog. Another legend that I've heard throughout the years is that the Marine Corps has never retreated. You don't hear this one too often nowadays. It's more of a tale told by older Marines. And I'm sure a few old-timers listening to this are clutching their pearls at the idea of the 5th Marines retreating. But there's plenty of examples of Marines retreating. 
this one included. The results of investigation into the conduct of Major E. Messersmith is a formal investigation documented by the Marine Corps. I think the reason why the story isn't heard more is precisely because of the Marine Corps' reputation as an unbeatable force. But as I said multiple times, this podcast is about the history of the Marine Corps, not warm and fuzzy stories about the Marine Corps. And understanding our weaknesses only improves our strength. Gregory eloquently sums up the reason why sharing this information is essential. Quote, The untold story of October 4th, the good and the bad, deserves to be recognized to remember those Marines who gave their lives that day and to acknowledge the lessons from the failures, blunders, and defeat, as they are also part of the larger history of actions of the Marine Corps in World War I. Unquote. Lee ordered 1-6 and 3-6 to attack in response to the 5th shortcomings. Artillery wasn't successful, and the two battalion commanders believed it was impossible to carry out the operation successfully. They postponed the attack until a sufficient battery could be provided. 3-6 advanced the following day and captured 275 prisoners, 80 machine guns, and multiple other weapons. The 6th Marines passed the front line held by the 5th at 1500 on October 5th. They were able to advance on nearly one mile of the front before a strong German defense stopped them. The next morning, the 2nd Field Artillery Brigade bombarded the hill for an hour, and 3-6 made their assault. The Marines finally captured the hill, and the front remained relatively quiet for the rest of the day. Thanks for listening. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy, written by Christopher Leonard. I think most of us can point to the Federal Reserve as a reason for the 2008 recession, but personally, I couldn't articulate or frankly even understand what they did that caused it. This book does a phenomenal job breaking down the complexity of the Federal Reserve, and the events leading up to the too-big-to-fail mantra that still lingers today. The book follows Thomas Honing, the only person voting against the decisions that ultimately crashed the market. But despite understanding the consequences with some of the recommendations offered by the Federal Reserve at the time, we continue to practice the same policies to this day. Visit audibletrial.com slash history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.